Imagine that you're standing before God and he asks you in a kind but forceful voice, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? We're in the middle of a series, actually we're finishing up a series today about TBA. What do the letters TBA actually stand for? Well, originally it stood for to be announced, but over time it became to be known as trusting and believing and acting. And today we're finishing up that series on acting. And the biggest action that we want to be able to do is get people to answer this question correctly. This is not a test in which God grades on the curve. It's a pass-fail question. You either have the right answer or you don't have the right answer. And as we build bridges to our friends and they come to be interested in spiritual things over time, you may have the opportunity, I would actually call it the privilege of of asking that question. I certainly would never ask anybody that question the first time I meet them. And by the way, don't wear those t-shirts. But there comes a time when my relationship is strong enough and I'm going to be friends with my friend long after the conversation takes place that I want to get to that question sooner or later. I want to find out what they're trusting in to get to heaven. And so that's been our focus. It's kind of the culmination of this series where T is for trusting God in every area of our lives. B is believing in the name of Jesus. And the A in TBA is acting. We're acting by getting with people and loving people. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But the ultimate action we can do is to ask somebody to become a part of the family of God. And so that's the question. You know, if indeed we want anybody to be involved in a relationship with Jesus, we've got to get something done. And that's what acting is about. It's anything done or being done. It's a, it's a, there's something I need to do to become a part of the family of God. And so our goal in this series is to get to this point where we learn how to invite people into that relationship with Jesus so that God is their Father and Jesus is their Savior. Now Jesus was all about that. And in Matthew chapter 9, we see a very interesting passage. He's early in his ministry and things are going very well. In fact, things are booming. It says in Matthew 9 and verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That's the context. It's a busy time. There's a lot of healing going on and a lot of miracles happening. And Jesus, by the way, doesn't do miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. His miracles are always done to validate his message. And his message from the very first day is, I am the Messiah, I am the King of Israel, I am the God that you're seeking in your heart. Every person is born with a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And Jesus comes clearly and he says into his world, I am the one that can fill that need. And the miracles validate his message. We're going to do a series on the life of Christ starting in May. And we'll see over and over when Jesus does his miracles, it's to validate something he's going to say. He does it by validating it with a miracle. But the passage continues. As Jesus sees the crowd, he saw the people and he felt compassion. Say compassion. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Say distressed and dispirited. Distressed and dispirited. Like what? Sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And at TBA, that's the A. 
is we want God to send us out into the harvest. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus so we, we can see people come to know Jesus in a personal relationship. And we do that with a good motive. We're not trying to manipulate people. We hope to do it out of love. Jesus ministered to the multitudes out of love. One of my favorite Greek words in the text is the word compassion. It's the word splagizomai. Can you say that? Splagizomai. It has to do with your spleen. And it literally means moved in your innermost being. Have you had that experience where you see something and it just moves you? It's really the word that happens when you get on a roller coaster and you go, whoo, I'm moved in my innermost being. It has to do with the spleen and the kidneys. But here in this case, he looks out into the multitude and people do not know him. They do not recognize him. They do not worship him. And he's moved with pity or sympathy to take action. Ultimately, he, he does the incredible action of going to the cross and becoming their sin offering. But Jesus does what he does out of a heart of compassion. And we do what we do out of a heart of compassion. We see people, 100,000 people within five miles of this building, and 75,000 of them have no church family, no church home. As far as we know, no relationship with Jesus. And so we want to act on being the hands and feet of Jesus so we can invite them, because we care for people, the way Jesus cared for people, in our innermost being, we want people to know Jesus. The people themselves are described in two ways. They're distressed. And the word distressed is the word for skull, skulo. That means to be weary or harassed, or it actually has to do with the hunting term, to skin an animal, which Brian Legg does with his hogs, to flay or to mangle or to vex or to trouble or to annoy. Does that sound like you sometimes? Yeah, it is. You know, sometimes I am vexed or mangled. Sometimes I just feel like the whole world is just a mess and I'm not much help. And I'm lonely and I'm afraid and I'm in despair and I have great anxiety about what's going to happen. That's the sheep. The great thing is I have Jesus. And I have my hope fixed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So I know that although I may not know everything going on today, I know that in the end, everything is going to be fine because I know Jesus. And when I stand before the throne of God and he asks me in a kind but firm voice, why should I let you into my heaven? I've got the right answer. It's the most important question any of us will ever answer. And so on the days when I'm having a tough day, it's good to know Jesus. But imagine that your friends are trying to get through the day. If they don't know Jesus, how hard that is. Remember what it was like before you knew Jesus. You are like a sheep without a shepherd. And then the word dispirited is another interesting word. It's the word riptomai. And it's the word to throw or to propel with a forceful motion. There are people, we're surrounded by people who feel like they've been thrown away, cast away, cast out. They don't belong to anything. And the most important place to belong is into the family of Jesus. And so Jesus looks out into the crowd and he's filled with splagizomai and he sees that the sheep are distressed and they're dispirited. And so he, he utters the prayer, pray therefore that the Father send workers out into the harvest. And that's our A word. We want to act on that. We want to go out and build bridges to people that don't know Jesus yet so when the time is right we can ask him this question, you know, if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you in a kind but forceful voice, why should I let you into heaven? Do you have the right answer to that quiz? It's pass-fail. 
You see, the scriptures are full of references to people that don't know Jesus. People that don't know Jesus are called blind, they're called dead, and they're called trapped. Say that for me. They're called blind, they're called dead, and they're called trapped. People that don't know Jesus are not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. The word blind is is very important in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We don't have many blind people in America, and when we do, we, we find programs to help them. But if you travel the world at all, there are still on street corners in most of the third, all of the third world countries and some of the second world countries, people who are blind, and all they can do to get through the day is beg. And they have to be steered to their corner with whatever it is they're going to use to beg. And that should move me because people who don't see clearly the light of Christ are blind to the truth. I can't expect them to behave like believers because they're blind. They don't see Jesus. They don't see what it's like to know Jesus. And they're blind. That ought to move me. I love the blind spiritually. Because not only are they blind, but they're dead. And you were dead. And I was dead. When I first come into this life, even we got these great babies here. Jen has her baby in the back. But that baby spiritually is dead. Very much alive when she squawks. He squawks. Is it a he or she? Yeah, she, okay. But, you know, physically when we come into this world, we have a body that's alive, but our spirit is dead. And people that don't know Jesus can't live like a Christian because they don't have Jesus living in them. It's okay if they sin. We expect them to sin. We sin. We have a solution for that. But people without Jesus are blind and they're dead spiritually. They can't behave the way God wants them to behave because they're trapped. It says, 2 Timothy 2, that they may come to their senses. The the goal is to pray for them that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The word snare is the word for a fishing net. That's a fish there. And he's upside down. And a fish who's upside down does not live very long. And that ought to move me. I ought to have compassion. I ought to have splagizo for my friends that don't know Jesus yet because they're blind and they're dead and they're trapped. And I have a way. I have a message. I have the answer to their spiritual question, which is this. If your friends were standing before God and he asks them in a kind but forceful voice, why should I let you into my heaven? What would they say? What would they say? Well, the great news is there's an answer to this pass-fail course. And I try to get to this question with my friend because it helps me know what they're trusting in. You know, one of my best friends is, is my bicycle buddy, and I love him to death, and I've asked him this question on a couple of occasions. You know, if you were standing before God and he, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? Well, you know, I'm a good person. How good are you? Well, I keep most of the commandments most of the time. Who gets to determine the standard of good? You go to church once in a while. I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God, yeah. But he he, he fails the test. God doesn't grade this test on the curve. It's not like if you make a 65, you get in. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. It's a pass-fail course. And so we've given you a little booklet in which you can explain to a friend, if you don't have a good way to do it, how to answer this question. You know, the problem is that everybody has 
a God-shaped vacuum. And until that question is answered correctly, that vacuum is in there. People try to fill their lives with money, sex, substances, power, pleasure, even pain. And they're never full, and they're never complete as people until they have the answer to this question. And so when the time is right, I might ask my friend, would you mind if I shared with you some things? And where do you find these people? Well, they're, they're your family, they're your co-workers, they're your neighbors, they're the people that you enjoy leisure, leisure time with. And when the time is right, and this question comes up, this is the answer to the question. There are four things in the booklet that I want you to get a hold of. Three things we need to know and one thing we need to do. God's position, our condition, God's provision, and our decision. Read that with me. God's position, our condition, God's provision, and our decision. Read that to the person sitting next to you. Go. Just read it off the screen. Go. Good. Let's go through these quickly. And again, the goal is that you would learn what's in this booklet. There's nothing magical about the booklet. There are other booklets that do a great job. We just happen to pick this one because it's got the important stuff on the left side and illustrations on the right side which help illustrate the point. God's position is twofold. God loves us, but God is perfect. I've never had anybody disagree with this, by the way. I stop, say, is this, are you okay with this? Do you understand that God loves you? The most famous verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only... We all want a loving God. But Jesus, in Matthew 5.48, when he's interpreting the Jewish law, says that the law demands that you're perfect. And in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, God is perfect and heaven is perfect and he can't allow into heaven anything which is not perfect. There's no place for sin in heaven. That creates a dilemma because God's position is he loves us, but he's what? Perfect. Our condition is the following bullet point here. Our condition is that we're not perfect. And again, if your friend knows you at all, they know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. What is sin? Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. Well, sin is anything less than perfect. Maybe it's a thought that I have that I shouldn't have. Lust, anger, fear, frustration. Maybe it's something I do outwardly. You know, steal, commit adultery. Those are all sins and that makes me not perfect. And the result of being not perfect is that I'm separated from God. Now, every world religion understands this. Romans 6.23 says the result of sin is death. Death is separation from God. And whether you're a Buddhist okay, or a Muslim or a Jew, everybody recognizes this. God is perfect and we are not, and there's a separation there. There's a verse in there from Isaiah uh, 59 in the Old Testament. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. So when people come into the planet, God loves them, but God's perfect. We're not perfect, and therefore we're separated from God. Wait a minute, I'm better than so-and-so, and he goes to church. Yeah, probably. But that's why I love the illustrations. 
And on the right side of the booklet, it says, Picture yourself with all of humanity lined up at the rim of a canyon. The only way to get across the one-mile chasm is to jump. The distance you can jump is directly proportional to how many good deeds you have performed. So, you know, like Mother Teresa would get out a quarter of a mile, and I might jump, you know, 15 feet. Not really. And Ruth is here. Ruth would get one half a step. Just kidding. Just love Ruth. But I, but I have no shot of making it across the canyon because that's where God is, and he's perfect, and no matter how much I do in comparison to other people, we're all way short, aren't we? And so it says, one by one they try, but they fall short of the other side the same way, even though some people perform more good deeds than others. All of us fall short of perfection. So God's position, he loves us, but he's what? Perfect. Our condition is we're not perfect, and therefore we're separated from God. The thing that Christianity does differently is point number three. See, every other system says, God's perfect, you're not, and here's what you've got to do to earn your way to God. Whether you obey the teachings of Islam or obey the teachings of the Old Testament or obey the reincarnations of Hinduism, you can only get there by what, it's what you do. Christianity says, no, 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 it's what God does. God's provision is he sends a substitute for you and for me. That's what makes our faith different. Jesus says, hey, I know you'll never make it. So I'm going to come and be your substitute. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what, died for us. That's what Easter's all about. See, we have the cross up here, and on Good Friday, Jesus became our sin offering. We are separated from God because of our sin, and the result of sin is death. Now, either I can die and pay my own punishment, or I can look for somebody else to pay what I owe. Isn't that a neat deal? You know, I'm, you know, I'm a big baseball fan, and you can find an illustration in whatever area you like. But let's suppose I'm in the World Series, and it's the bottom of the ninth, and the bases are loaded, and I'm having to face Sid Kimbrell, the best closer in the National League. And while I'm on deck just thinking, how am I going to hit that 104-mile-an-hour fastball, there's Babe Ruth standing in the on-deck circle. And the babe says, hey... I got this. Not only that, babe not only has it, but Jesus shows up and he never misses because Jesus never sinned. All 613 commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus never broke one of them. So when he dies, he doesn't have to pay for his own sin. He can pay for my sin. He can be my what? Substitute. Don't miss that. And so therefore God's love and his perfection are not compromised. I love this story. It's a true story on the right side of that point. It says, uh, during the Great Depression, police brought an elderly man before a New York City night court magistrate. The man was starving and had stolen a loaf of bread. It was for his family. That night, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, if you can say that, I'll give you a nickel, was presiding over the court as he sometimes did to stay close to his citizens. He fined the old man $10. The law is the law and cannot be broken, the mayor said. At the same time, he took a $10 bill out of his wallet and paid the fine for the man. And then LaGuardia cited each person in the courtroom for living in a city that did not help its poor and elderly, unduly tempting them to steal. The mayor fined everyone in the audience 50 cents. And he gave almost $50 to the amazed defendant. Both justice and love 
were served when LaGuardia paid the penalty and more for the old man. And see, when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sin, both justice and love were served. Isn't that great? God's justice is taken care of because the debt is paid and God's love is demonstrated because Christ died in my place. Now, most people know that. In fact, most people that grew up in Lakeland have heard that. Those are the three things you need to know. I knew that. I grew up around a church. My mom was in one denomination. My dad was in another. But I knew all these three things. What I didn't know was point number four. And point number four is the key to answering the question when I get to the gate of heaven and God says in a kind but forceful voice, why am I going to let you in here? Our decision is to believe. And that's what we've talked about in our series. What does it mean to believe? You know, Brian Legg a few weeks ago used the airplane illustration. It's not enough to believe that airplanes fly by seeing them in the sky. It's not enough to understand aerodynamics and aviation. But what I have to do to believe is get on board an airplane. That's believing. What I have to do with Jesus is get on board. I need to go all in. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So to believe in Jesus means to receive Christ. There's a great picture of that in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the door of your heart. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will what? Come into him and will eat with him and he with me. It's the picture of Jesus saying, hey, I want to come into your life. I want to invade every part of your being. I want you to be all in with me. And that's what it means to believe in Jesus, to receive him, to receive his gift, to live like I'm getting on the airplane and entrusting my life to him. That's the only way to heaven. It's not about being a good person, although we need to be. It's not about going to church, although it's not a bad thing to go to church. It's not about prayer, although prayer is important. But the answer to that question is, what have I done about Jesus? And again, there's one more illustration. Blondin, I'll just tell you the illustration. A guy named Harry Blondin in the early 1900s was a famous French tightrope walker. And he was also a master of advertising. And he was going to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope, 1,100 feet across, 160 feet above the falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? It's amazing. And he, he charged people to come watch. And on the day of the great event, he walked out onto the wire and he did some tricks and he came back to their applause. Then he took a wheelbarrow and he put a, he put a wheelbarrow on the wire and he walked out with the wheelbarrow and he got himself turned around, I don't know how, and then he came, there's some footage of this, by the way, if you can Google Blondin, and he came back with the wheelbarrow empty. And then he took a 100-pound sack of flour and he put the sack of flour in the wheelbarrow and he went out and he did a couple of things and got himself turned around and came back with the wheel. But no, they were nuts. Imagine that. Then Harry said, listen. Over the roar of the falls, he says, how many of you believe that I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and cross the falls with him? Oh, we believe. He said, good. Who'd like to be first? See, it's one thing to believe about Jesus. It's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow. True story, after a few moments of awkward silence, no one came forward until his business manager stepped up and whispered into Harry's ear, and he wouldn't get in the wheelbarrow, but he climbed on Harry's back. I think he probably thought, if, if I'm going over, Harry's going with me. <laughs> and they crossed the falls, but in the biblical sense of the word, only he believed. He entrusted his life 
to another person and allow that other person to take him somewhere he can't get on his own. That's what Jesus does for us. He's the person that says, I will take you to heaven. It's a narrow way. I'm the only one who can get you there, but you've got to go all in. You've got to step on board. You've got to climb on my back and allow me to do what only I can do, which is die for my sin and take me to the other side, which is heaven. And that is the message of the gospel. And you need to be able to share that with people that you love, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors. Because the average Christian person, as Dave said last week, has never had the joy of leading an individual to Christ. So take this booklet, put it in a place you can become familiar with it. Give it away if you want. We've got more. And I, I don't use the booklet much. I just jot stuff out on a pad. But the goal is when you have a friendship that can stand it, it's okay to ask the question. You're standing before God, and he asks you in a kind but forceful voice, why should I let you in? It's a pass-fail test. The only answer that survives the test that makes an A+, is the fact that I don't deserve to get into heaven, God, but Jesus promised that he would take me there because he died for my sin on the cross. Amen? Amen. As the band comes, let's pray. A few weeks ago, I've asked you to start praying for individuals that don't know Jesus yet. That person in your life that you have a relationship with, they're responsive to you. Maybe they'd come to an Easter egg hunt. Maybe they just want to go to dinner. It's okay. But when the time is right and God gives you the open door, it's okay to ask him this question. You know, if you were standing at the gate of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? How will you answer that question? God's provision, God's position is that he loves us, but he's perfect. Our condition is we're not perfect and we're separated from God. God provides for us a substitute, Jesus, who comes and dies in our place on the cross and takes us to heaven, but we've got to jump on board. Our decision is we've got to believe. If you're here today and you've never done that, if you've never gotten on Blondin's back, if you've never gone all in with Jesus, he died for you. He showed you that God loves you so much. But God is a just and a perfect God, and you either can pay for that yourself or you can let Jesus pay for that. And if you've never done that, let me challenge you to do that. We're going to be around afterward. And invite Jesus into your heart. Open the door of your heart and say, Lord Jesus, come in and make yourself at home. Forgive me for what I owe God, and I trust you. I get on your back, and I, prom I trust you to take me to heaven. Father, we all have friends and family and neighbors and co-workers that don't know you yet. Give us a heart filled with compassion for those who are distressed and dispirited so we can be to them the hands and feet of Jesus. For we pray in his name.